0: Our first scripture reading is from Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 16 to 27. Jeremiah 32. This is uh, shortly after Jeremiah's imprisonment, which uh, you can read about in the first part of chapter 32. Pick that up at verse 16. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, then I prayed to the Lord, saying, Our Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and by thine outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for thee, who showest loving kindness to thousands, but repayest the iniquity of fathers into the bosom of their children after them. O great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name, great in counsel and mighty in deed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, giving to everyone according to his ways and according to the fruits of his deeds." who hast set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, and even to this day, both in Israel and among mankind. And thou hast made a name for thyself as at this day. And thou didst bring thy people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and with wonders, and with a strong hand, and with an outstretched arm, and with great terror. And gavest them this land, which thou didst swear to their forefathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey, And they came in and took possession of it, but they did not obey thy voice or walk in thy law. They have done nothing of all that thou commandest them to do. Therefore thou hast made all this calamity come upon them. Behold, the siege mounds have reached the city to take it, and the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans who fight against it because of the sword, the famine, and the pestilence. And what thou hast spoken has come to pass, and behold, thou seest it. And thou hast said to me, O Lord God, O Lord God, buy for yourself the field with money and call in witnesses, although the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh, is anything too difficult for me? And we'll stop at that point. Uh, you'll notice that at the start of that reading early on and also at the end, that point, that God is the creator and is therefore anything too difficult for him? And I think we know the answer to that question. Would you also then turn, please, to Romans chapter 1? well-known passage from verses 18 to... I'll read through to verse 25... The sermon will be from verses 18 to 23. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever forever. Amen. And then if you look in your bulletin, you'll find uh, the Westminster Confession, chapter 4 articles, the two articles of that chapter printed there, Westminster 4, articles 1 and 2. Article 1. It pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness in the beginning to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days and all very good. And then Article 2. After God had made all other creatures... He created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, endued with knowledge, righteousness and true holiness after his own image, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to to fulfil it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject unto change." Beside this law written in their hearts, they received a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which, while they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would constantly teach us that you continue to do so by word and spirit so that we may gain a better understanding, a better knowledge of God, but also a better and biblical understanding of ourselves and of the world around us so that we may learn to give all the more glory to you, creator and ruler and redeemer. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. covenant people of God, when we uh, compare two things by saying that they are like chalk and cheese, what we generally mean by that is that those two things have a kind of a superficial similarity, but at the same time, uh, they are in uh, many other ways completely unlike. For example, you may have two sons, and one of your sons loves to stay indoors and read, And the other one loves to be outside all the time doing lots of active things, action-type things. And you might say those two boys, even though they may both look like my sons, they're like uh, chalk and cheese. So different in their characters. Well, even though God has made us in his image and there are certain ways in which we do reflect his character, yet ultimately speaking, uh, we say that God and the creature are like chalk and cheese. He, as God, is infinite and he is one of a kind. Creatures, on the other hand, are finite or limited and we are many of various kinds. God is divine. He is independent from his creatures. He is eternal and he is original. Nobody created him. While creatures are derived, we are created beings, and we are creatures of time, temporal beings, and we are dependent as creatures, dependent on the God who made us and who cares for us. And these things that I've said already, you could say a lot more about this distinction, but this is a large part of what we mean by the distinction or difference between the Creator and the creature, or the creator-creature distinction, as it's often called, and I've referred to it before a number of times over the years. Now this distinction, this creator-creature distinction, is a fundamental starting point for your world and life view. If you are a Christian, you accept it. If you are not a Christian, then you base all of your thinking ultimately on the opposite assumption, or there's a couple of different uh, forms that that opposite assumption may take. It may be that there either is no God, or if there's a God, that that God and the creature are on more or less the same level. And that is the basic assumption of the non-Christian. That if there is a God, God, the God and the creature are on the same level. Whereas we emphasize this Create a creature distinction that involves an infinite difference and a completely uh, a God who is wholly other than the creature in fact, as well as being infinite infinitely greater well, this distinction is an assumption in our text, and it is taught in our text as a background for the explanation that the apostle is making of total depravity in the whole of mankind, and perhaps the particular focus here. In the gentile world at that time as that is expressed or was expressed in the gentile world at that time and the apostle will go on to say also in the jewish world that everybody is shut up under sin three points as we look at this this afternoon first of all what god reveals in creation secondly why many do not acknowledge it and thirdly what happens as a result So, three points what god reveals in creation why many don't acknowledge that and what happens as a result. In the first place, then, with this first point, uh, as I've worded it, what God reveals in creation, I've used the present tense. Uh, what God reveals uh, to imply that uh, there's an on, this is an ongoing thing, that we're not just talking about something that happened way back at the beginning, And that in the beginning, with the creation of the world, God revealed past tense certain things. No, it is something that began in the past but continues to be something revealed up to the present time. Still very much the case today. And you see those present tenses here in this text. Verse 19, the Apostle's talking about what is known from creation, what is evident. And even in verse 20 where he refers to things that have been clearly seen, being understood, even that in the original language is actually a present tense, uh, meaning the things that are clearly seen. Though it is true that the text bases this on what God revealed in the beginning, in the creation of the universe, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, it was true then, in other words, but it still remains true today. You can look at the world around us and if God enables you to see it, you can see the same things in the world around you today that Adam and Eve saw in the Garden of Eden. You can essentially see the same things revealed about God there uh, if you are enabled to see them rather than to uh, blind yourself to those truths. Now regarding this creation, I'm not going to go into the subject of creation versus evolution this afternoon. We have looked at that before on a number of occasions. Uh, I want to deal with something a little bit uh, different, though in some ways uh, related, this afternoon. Uh, I will, however, refer to this, that you have a nice summary of this in that first article in the Westminster Confession. These are truths. This is a truth, then, that we confess in our churches. And it's one that makes the matter very, very clear That God in the beginning created or made, two different words used there. They're the two words that are used in the English translation in our text also, created and made. And if you go back to the translation of the Hebrew in Genesis 1, you'll find the English translation there also uses those two words translating the original language. God created and he made. So the confession uses biblical language here. God created or made all things in this world, visible or invisible. Angels, for example, are invisible to us, unless they take on human form. That has happened sometimes, but they are spirit creatures. Uh, For example, all things, visible and invisible, all of it created by God in the beginning from nothing, and critical expression in the space of six days. It doesn't get any clearer than that. There are people who say, oh, the Westminster Confession doesn't really rule out theistic evolution or something of that. Well, I challenge anybody to get around those words in the space of six days, if words mean anything. And what is found there in that confession by way of summary is only taking up what is taught already in Genesis 1 and 2 which speak of that time, especially Genesis 1 uh, in those telling us of those six days. And Hebrews 11 verse 3, similarly in the New Testament, telling us that everything we see around us, everything in the world around us was prepared by, in the original, it says, by the spoken word of God. In other words, it is referring us back to those statements recorded in Genesis 1 when God said, Let there be, and by the simple power of his word, it was. Those things came into existence. And Hebrews 11 is referring back to that. But as I say, I don't want to go into detail in that, but uh, go in a somewhat different direction with this uh, text, uh, because the point in Romans 1 is not so much about how God made the world, but more about how he demonstrated from the start the creator creature distinction, that he displayed this from the start and he still displays it today. That in creating the universe, God gave a witness to the glory of his own invisible attributes, those personal defining characteristics. He did not, in giving that creation, give us uh, uh, evidence and truth about the Lord Jesus Christ as our saviour or the gospel, that comes in his word in special revelation but in this uh, creation, this world around us we have evidence and a demonstration of God's invisible attributes. Some of those attributes are mentioned here, others are mentioned in the rest of scripture. In this passage in verse 20 Creation tells us, and every aspect of creation tells us, God is eternal. It tells us that God is powerful. It tells us about his divinity, which is really the refers to the totality of everything God is. And that in turn implies his existence, that there is a God in heaven. This too is seen, reflected in all the things around us. To which the Westminster in the second article here adds that we see in creation God's wisdom, and there you could think of Psalm 104, verse 24, and also his goodness, and there you could think of Genesis 1 and that repeated expression that it was good, very good, reflecting God's goodness. And scripture adds to that list of attributes reflected in the creation uh, in various other places. All of this to do with general revelation, what everybody generally sees, and not hear so much about special revelation, which for us is essentially what we read in the Bible. Uh, The general revelation that everybody gets to see, but the special revelation that not everybody gets exposed to. Not only did the Lord put that witness in the universe around man, but he has also put it within man. He made man in his image as we are reminded in uh, the second article here in the Westminster which means that man learns about God if he would only listen and look he would learn about God from looking at himself as well because he is by his own nature made in God's image tarnished as that image is among sinners. He built into man An awareness of God's existence, what uh, sometimes is referred to in uh, a few Latin, a couple of little Latin phrases, the sensus deitatis, the sense of deity, the awareness of deity, or sometimes uh, called uh, sensus divinitatis, the sense of divinity, that there is a God, that God exists, and a sense also of God's law reflected in our conscience. These are things that have to do with our own personal makeup, our own being, what lies uh, within us as human beings. And so verse 19 can talk about that which is known about God being evident within them, within man. So then general revelation with its creator-creature distinction, general revelation is what makes uh, men generally, uh, it's, it's something that men generally receive, it's sent to them by God, it's displayed by him and it's something that comes to every man on two fronts, it presses in on him from outside because everywhere he looks he sees evidence of these things but it also wells up within him, within his own nature and his own conscience and sense of deity. Deity. This, as I said, is a fundamental truth or presupposition for the Christian. It is fundamental to our worship. It is fundamental to our worship because here with this creator-creature distinction, we recognize that God is unique. There is only one God, our creator, and he is infinitely far above us. And therefore we ought to worship only him and not idols. And we ought to worship him as he tells us to worship, and not as we might like to invent that, as mere creatures. And uh, that we should worship him then with uh, reverence and with awe as the one who is so far above us, as this distinction tells us. And this creator-creature distinction is fundamental to all our obedience, to recognize that God has the right to tell you how to live, You don't have the right to tell you how to live. We love to think that. But God has the right to tell us how to live. He is the one who knows what is best for us and what is for his glory and who has the right to make laws accordingly. This distinction is fundamental to trusting God because trusting God, part of that, means accepting that he is able to do anything he wants to. He is capable of doing whatever He wants, rather than being limited like a a creature. Creatures may want to do certain things we find we can't do. You may wish you could disappear sometimes, but you can't do that. Not in the uh, literal and full sense. Uh, And so uh, there are many things we may want to do, but God is not limited. That's part of this creator-creature distinction. He's not limited by creatures. He's not limited by circumstances. He's not a slave to the future. He creates the future or ordains it, would be a better word. These things are all under his control and the creator-creature distinction tells that. And that also then teaches us about trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because he too is God. And uh, we need to be able to accept the same truths about the power of the Lord Jesus as we do for God the Father or the Holy Spirit. And this is also related to that trust necessary in accepting that God can answer our prayers, that he can hear all the prayers of all his people throughout the whole world, and he can answer each and every one of those as he wishes because there is a creator-creature distinction. And it is also fundamental to accepting That because uh, we recognise that God is the potter and we are the clay, another way of expressing that that same distinction, we need to accept that in order to accept the truth of election. That God has the right to choose one vessel for honourable use and another for common use. How do we say that's not fair? Our answer is the creator-creature distinction. He's the potter and we're nothing but clay. How would we dare to object? And this truth is fundamental to accepting the doctrine of creation over against evolutionistic teaching because with this distinction we recognize that God is not limited to processes of science and uh, what we call normal or natural processes in nature. He is not limited to that, but he can create an entire universe simply by speaking, and he could do it in six seconds if he wanted to, in six milliseconds if he wanted it to, instantaneously if he wanted to, and he can certainly do it and has done it in six days. Why? Because there is this creator-creature distinction. The same is true, actually, with accepting other miracles. The miracles of the Bible with the Lord Jesus. Why do we not need to look for some natural explanation for Jesus walking on water or multiplying loaves and fishes? Because we accept the creator-creature distinction. And we know that he was God. And it's this very point that, generally speaking, uh, whether non-Christians all, in one way or another, that non-Christian thought rejects. But what a a far-reaching truth this is, which I try to show by mentioning these various ways in which it comes out in different aspects of Christian thinking and life. Well, as I say, it is a presupposition that many reject today. Why do they do so? We look at that in our second point, why many do not acknowledge it. And we could answer that why from a psychological point of view, easily enough, and we could say that many refuse to acknowledge this truth, that God is God and we are just creatures, because it is a terribly inconvenient truth. And if they believed that truth, then it would require so much of them. It would require that they should dedicate their life to trusting this God and serving Him and obeying Him and worshipping Him, and many prefer not to do that not to live life God's way, but they want to live their own way, according to their own pleasure. But the Apostle Paul doesn't answer this here in a psychological way. He answers it in more of an historical way to explain how this state of affairs has come about, that so many people refuse to acknowledge God as God and that we are just creatures. He uh, points out he points this out in contrast to what he says in verse 17 where he refers to the opposite scenario, the believer who has received the revelation of the righteousness of God in Christ. And we receive that by special revelation, by reading the Bible or hearing it. That's verse 17. And the contrast in our text is that unbelievers are instead all shut up under sin, not righteousness, but the opposite, despite the fact that they all have general revelation. And the Apostle does that by tracing what we might refer to not as man's evolution, but as his devolution. Certainly his devolution, spiritually speaking. And he begins with the fact that man received general revelation at creation. So Adam and Eve knew that God existed and they knew about his invisible attributes and they had some sense of what was right and wrong and they they had that inner sense of God's um, existence as well as the fact that he walked and talked with them in the cool of the evening in uh, some way. And they freely listened to that and did what was right. Now, of course, they also had not only general revelation, they also had some special revelation. God spoke his words to them, so they did have that as well. But the point that the apostle is making here is that even after Adam and Eve sinned and man fell, fallen man still received that same clear witness through God's creation that Adam and Eve had received and listened to. That fallen man uh, still had this revelation pressing in upon him from everything around him, uh, from all of creation, all of the universe, and he still had this inner deep awareness of the existence of God welling up within him and a some sense of what was right and wrong, uh, twisted as he had become. Still, these things were clearly seen and understood. Verse 20 so that man still, in a sense, knew God. Verse 21. Uh, Knew something about his existence, character and requirements, Uh, knew those things at some deep level, knew the fact of them at some deep level, but did not love what they knew, and that was the problem. To uh, illustrate that problem, perhaps perhaps you've had this experience with uh, other people, sometimes sadly with other people in the church, when uh, you begin to get the idea that they really don't like you. And uh, you try to help those people still, you try to encourage them, you try to assure them of your goodwill and they actually do hear and see those things. They hear those things that you say to them to encourage, they see those things that you do to express goodwill towards them and yet despite the fact that they know that those things are going on, they kind of put a different slant on it or, or make it something negative or ignore it because they do not like you. Well, this is the sense in which unbelievers know God. Deep down, they see what he's done They even see his many, many kindnesses towards them each day and they see this wonderful creation that he's made. They see all of those things and deep down they know but they either ignore it, they choose to ignore it or they put a slant on it because they do not love him. This is described in verse 18 as suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. To suppress means, in the original language here, it means to hold something down, to hold it down firmly, in fact, or it could mean to hold against something, to restrain it, or to push it back. You see, the truth presses in on the unbeliever from the entire universe around him. And at the same time, it wells up from within him through that sensus dea and through the conscious conscience, and through the very fact that he's an image-bearer. And this is a kind of a, you could put it this way and say, it is a sort of a two-pronged attack that God has against his unbelief, coming from within and from outside. It is as if God says to this person, uh, again to use something of an illustration here, uh, you have a, a rebel who's holed up in his house. And it's as if God is saying to him, we have you completely surrounded, come out with your hands up. And the rebel unbeliever instead fires out a few pot shots through the window and then points the gun at anybody in the house who would be inclined to give up, if they would be. And uh, that's what man is doing then, The, the things outside that press in on him about God, he just fires shots at them and what wells up within he tries to suppress as well and sadly the problem doesn't stop there and it didn't stop with the human race from we read about that after genesis 3 as you go on in human history those who glimpse the truth but refuse to honor the lord or to show gratitude are given over to that they're given over to unbelief and to its consequences and verses 21 to 23 describe that. Their heart is further darkened. They become even more vain, even more futile, that is to say, or empty in their religious thinking and in their philosophical speculations and reasonings and imagination so that there is more and more ungodliness in their lives, verse 18. The word there means uh, those who lack reverence for God. They become more and more irreverent towards God and they become more and more unrighteous, the other word that's used in that verse, which means they become more opposed to God's law, more immoral, if you like. And they more and more swap the glory of the incorruptible God for the worship of a mere Uh, image or likeness in the form of corruptible creatures. In other words, they turn more and more more away from the creator-creature distinction and try to lift the creature up to level it with a God they say they don't believe in. And I wonder too, uh, as they blur this distinction more and more, I wonder if you've caught the contrast here in these verses. What it's saying is that when this happens, the unbeliever is exchanging the reality of the living God and the glory of the living and eternal God. They're exchanging that for a mere image or form of non-existent gods based on speculation about creatures. This is uh, a little bit like, I mean, it's worse than this, I suppose, but... Uh, I'm not really uh, one who's into cars and I don't know much about them, but um, if you would trade in uh, a Rolls Royce in perfect condition for, say, a a Fiat, a beat-up old Fiat, or not even a Fiat, let's say a cartoon drawing of a Fiat or a Lada, that's the classic one, isn't it, or something of that kind, you trade in your perfectly good Rolls Royce for a beat-up cartoon drawing a, a messed up piece of paper that has a rough drawing on it of a fiat or a larder. That's, only what the unbeliever's doing is worse than that because they're trading the living God for a representation, a messed up and speculative representation, a cartoon caricature of a creature and calling it a god. And history, the history of Gentile paganism is just that. This uh, devolution of this truth from the beginning. And this is also where rejecting God and rejecting this distinction leaves people today. Now, make no mistake about it, this has huge consequences both in history, after the fall in the human race, and also in the lives of those who reject God today. Our third and final point what happens as a result? And there are really only two possible ways that this can go. If someone rejects the creator-creature distinction, that is to say if they reject God. And that is essentially the same thing. Because if you reject the distinction, then you are trying to drag God down to the level of the creature or drag the creature up to the level of a god. And to do that is to create an idol. That is what idolatry is. It is denying the creator-creature distinction. And if you do that and you reject God, you reject the Lord Jesus Christ because he is God, you therefore reject also the gospel, you refuse to honour God or to give him thanks, then there is a consequence in this life and that is being given over to futility, to uh, foolishness, to uh, darkness, to irreverence, to immorality, as opposed to those things that general revelation's telling you, that your sensus deitatis within you is telling you, that your conscience is telling you, and if you've seen or read it, that the word of God is telling you. But then, if that is the way you are, that you do these things, even though deep down you know that that's not right, then at the end you receive another very shocking revelation and that is the revelation of God's wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness as verse 18 refers to that and as you may know there are many today who think this biblical teaching of judgment and hell is so very unfair they say it is unfair because God has not given us if God gave me unmistakable evidence of his existence If he could just show me something I could see with my own eyes then I would believe it. And it's so terribly unfair because if there is a God, well surely he would be not so unjust as to ignore all of the wonderfully good things I've done throughout my life. And so for those reasons and perhaps others, uh, people think that this teaching about this revelation of wrath is, is very unfair. Forgetting that they have actually received and every day they are completely surrounded by unmistakable evidence. Surrounding them at every point with both things they can and can't see and also welling up from within them in their own very nature and they've got that every day. And every day they have that sense of deity and that conscience that come with being an image bearer. And uh, then some, as I said, in addition to that, may have the word, uh, they may hear or read the word. But they have rejected that clear witness on the basis of a God-denying and an ungrateful presupposition. They are, as verse 20 says, without excuse. It's a bit like, uh, well, the young people are going to be starting school again, uh, or they're schooling fairly soon, I guess, and uh, perhaps... Uh, When the end of the semester comes, you have some exams. And teachers sometimes give out help notes for preparing for exams. It's a bit like a child who receives a very good set of help notes from their teacher, which they promptly throw away or lose or whatever else. And then when they fail their exam, they complain it was the teacher's fault because uh, they made it too hard or whatever else. When they've thrown away or tried to throw away the very thing that was given to them to help. They are without excuse. And in fact, general revelation was given in part for this very purpose to leave the unbeliever without excuse uh, when he comes before God on the last day, but also at the present time. The other alternative is when God graciously breaks through that deadness and that blindness of unbelief by his word and his spirit and enables sinners to believe his word, to believe the special revelation, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to repent of their sins, with the result that the witness of general revelation is then re-evaluated by the believer. And finally they begin to understand, as Adam and Eve once did before the fall. And of course the special revelation also uh, further spells out and clarifies and enables them to use properly those things that they see uh, as word and spirit work on them progressively. So the creator-creature distinction is then accepted and filled out and clarified by the word of God in the life of the believer. The sensus deatatus, the sense of God's existence and the conscience begin to be listened to and informed more and more rather than suppressed. Leading to that life of worship and reverence of God and gratitude to God and obedience to God and trust in God, all that those other things I mentioned earlier that, come, uh, that are connected with the creator-creature distinction and more and the humility to accept that God is the potter and we are the clay and so forth. To accept that God is our creator and our rightful ruler and our redeemer, and that we are his creatures. And though, on the one hand, to accept that we are but creatures, that is all we are, and yet at the same time, to accept that we are creatures who are image bearers, and to accept that we are creatures who are not only God's servants, but also his beloved sons and daughters. Restored image bearers through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we constantly tend to have too small a view of you. As if we could somehow pull you down to creaturely size. We try in our own minds to limit your power and your wisdom and your right to rule us, even as those who, uh, who know that you help us, uh, that you have helped us and that you've taught us differently, we still tend to fall back in these, in these old patterns. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to learn more and more of your majesty and your holiness and your divinity and more and more of our smallness as finite and sinful creatures. Help us also to remind others of what creation teaches us and of what your word proclaims in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only way to be free of the darkness of unbelief and the wrath that comes upon sinners because of that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. world and the uh, people who dwell in it and all it contains belong to the lord who created it but only those who acknowledge that with his gracious aid will know his salvation sold him 41 we'll stand to sing and would you please remain standing for the blessing and doxology number 41 After the blessing, our doxology is number 306, stanzas 1 and 4. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.